Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. I personally think we've got a pretty heavily regulated sector. I just don't think the regulators and the law enforcement agencies have the tools at their disposal to regulate it properly. Today's guest lays out the case for an ambitious clampdown on economic crime and the way it is currently policed in the UK. He calls out UK regulators for their lack of proactiveness in addressing the issue and calls on financial services execs to help him shape the best possible path forward to rid London of its dirty money problem. Kevin Hollingrake is a member of the British Parliament for the ruling Conservative Party and the chair of the all-party parliamentary group on fair business banking. Hi Kevin, welcome to Following the Rules. Hi, lovely to be with you. You launched the Economic Crime Manifesto in May in your role as chair of the all-party parliamentary group on fair business banking alongside Dame Margaret Hodge, chair of the APBG on anti-corruption and fair tax. For those that may have missed that, why is this needed? Well, many people have been campaigning to clamp down on economic crime in the UK for a long time. What's happened with Ukraine and Russia and the fact that we can now see that Putin's used the enormous wealth of the Russian people to really sustain himself and be able to put himself in a position where he can basically invade countries like Ukraine. And given that, suddenly it's all become into very sharp focus, the fact that lots of this money, that lots of these Russian oligarchs base themselves in the UK, but I think more importantly, use some of the financial vehicles and and opportunities that the UK uniquely positions itself to make available to launder their money, their ill-gotten gains, out of the Russian economy, from the Russian people, into their own personal bank accounts. So suddenly people can see economic crime does affect people's day-to-day lives, and not just in terms of Russian kleptocrats uh, and people like Putin, but also drug dealers, people traffickers, all kinds of different people use uh, opportunities uh, such as money laundering to move their money around the world and to be able to enjoy their ill-gotten gains. And so therefore, suddenly, this has got huge public interest behind it, And as a consequence, we feel we've got the right opportunity now to put together a really comprehensive set of measures that can really clamp down economic economic crime in this country for the first time in a long time. 
And you mentioned the Ukraine war. Now, obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine prompted the government to pass its Economic Crime Act earlier this year. And then we've got the Economic Crime Bill set to be voted on in this session of Parliament. How does the manifesto launched in May differ from those two pieces of work? Well, it's more ambitious. The government, understandably, treads cautiously when it legislates because it doesn't want to bring about any unintended consequences. So the Economic Crime Bill Part 1 really tackled uh, some issues like a register of of UK property owned by overseas entities, which we've been calling for for a long time. When it came to Parliament, myself and Margaret and others, there was lots of changes that we effected that made it more comprehensive. And I think it'll be the same with the second piece of this legislation, the government's bringing forward things like companies' house reform, but also things like sharing of information between different banks uh, and the like, which we welcome all those things, but there's lots of things that it doesn't do. And that we want to press the government to include some more measures, things like increasing the amount of resources for enforcement, which I think is quite low level in the UK right now, because legislation's pointless without the enforcement measures that go behind it. But also two key things for me, giving directors of uh, large organisations personal culpability, criminal culpability, if they don't clamp down on economic crime, if they allow money laundering to happen or or don't put the controls in place to try and prevent it happening within their organisations, and then those people could go to jail. And also some measures around whistleblowing to, to make sure that the people who do highlight the wrongdoing are protected and compensated. Okay, and and so you mentioned a couple of highlight points included in the manifesto there. And one that you did mention was that the suggestion in the manifesto that bosses at financial firms could go to jail if they don't prevent economic crime or put the checks and balances you believe is required in place. What has been the reaction to that amongst city bosses? Have you heard much from them since the manifesto published? Well, I can't say I've spoken to them all, but the ones I have spoken to, as long as the requirement to prevent is fair, So we're not talking about you didn't stop everything going wrong in in your organisation. That's not possible. Clearly, there's lots of things you just don't know. So it's not what you could have done that you found guilty of. It's what you should have done. So, for example, if you didn't put controls in place to alert compliance teams to money laundering and didn't train people about money laundering within your organisation, or even more importantly, if of senior people are made aware in the organisation of what was going on and you turn a blind eye to it, then potentially you could go to jail or you, you could suffer some sanctions. So we've got to be proportionate. We don't want every chief exec thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to take that job or you know, I have to put so much bureaucracy around my business organisation that it just doesn't operate effectively anymore. We're not saying that at all. We're talking about much smarter regulation, not more regulation. I'll give you an example how effective this can be. When we brought in personal liability for directors in construction companies for health and safety offences, fatalities at work dropped by 90%. And you don't see many construction bosses going to jail, but you do see many fewer accidents and fatalities at work because suddenly you know you've got to put safety procedures in place, you know you've got to make sure people wear hard hats and high-vis vests and all those kind of things. So that's what we're talking about, making sure companies put the measures in place. And if if they are told that stuff is happening in their organisations, do act upon it. 
And if I, can, if I can just give you a couple of examples, again, why this is important. We saw NatWest this year plead guilty to uh, criminal charges uh, for money laundering. Of two, and they were fined £250 million, roughly. HSBC were fined just under $2 billion for allowing money laundering to take place from Mexican cartels a few years ago. Huge fines. Danske Bank will be fined at some point for allowing around £200 billion worth of money laundering going through their accounts. Now, all those companies have simply been fined, and it seems a cost of doing business. Clearly, banks make money out of this money flowing through their banks. So the temptation is, if it's simply a cost of doing business, if it can happen a few years down the line, I'm probably not even chief executive. I've probably moved on to another lucrative job and therefore don't take it seriously. We need to change that culture to make sure people take this stuff seriously and personal liability would do that. I guess I'm a bit cynical because in 2016, there was this effort to introduce criminal liability for senior managers as part of new accountability rules that came in called the Senior Managers and Certification Regime. And there was intense pushback towards that within the city and ultimately it didn't come to fruition. So I wonder how you would pitch that to the city to ensure that you wouldn't get that pushback. No, it's a very fair point. There's a couple of points within that. Uh, yes, we've got to make sure city bosses feel it's fair. And the ones I've spoken to um, are outraged themselves about some of the gratuitous examples of this willful ignorance of stuff that's going on and that we should clamp down on it because it's a stain on the whole city. So we've got to make sure that the rules are proportionate. But as I say, you could say construction bosses are pretty powerful and we managed to push that through back in the 70s. So we've got to work and make sure we can get people comfortable with this too. But the government is also determined. There's no doubt the financial services sector has very strong lobbying capabilities. Um, But there's one thing having the rules in place, and that will be a challenge, I agree with you. There's nothing completely in terms of making sure we use those opportunities. And one thing I would say about the senior managed regime, (laughs) despite some gratuitous examples that I've come across in terms of senior managers not doing what they should be doing, and and clear examples of that, the FCA has never used that regime for anyone, certainly high profile that I'm aware of, to um, clamp down on misconduct because the the senior managers regime exists and there are uh, sanctions available to them for people in the financial services sector, but the FCA failed to use it. So we've got to make sure our regulators are ready, willing and able to use the measures at their disposal to make sure people do think if they get this stuff wrong, they'll be sanctioned. And that leads nicely onto my next question, because you did mention at the start that one of the key differentiating factors in your manifesto versus what's already been passed or discussed through Parliament is this focus on more proactive enforcement to rid London of its dirty money problem. And in the manifesto in that context, you recommend that the Treasury implement a radical overhaul of anti-money laundering supervision by strengthening the Office for Anti-Money Laundering Supervision, which is housed in the Financial Conduct Authority with new powers to sanction supervisors and ensure consistency of implementation. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you'd like to see change there? Well, I think we've got to start where the problem is, I guess, is that too often we see lots of things like suspicious activity reports, SARS, as you know, them being churned out and very little oversight of what's actually happening there. So making sure that we're a bit smarter in terms of when uh, concerns are raised, that those things are properly investigated and acted upon. That's what we need to see. 
we've posed an exam question, if you like. This stuff isn't working as well as it should. What are we going to do about it? And at that point in time, of course, you've got to work with stakeholders, campaign groups, as well as you know, the financial services sector and the regulators themselves and the Treasury to make sure this stuff is proportionate, but also effective. Certainly, we need to make sure that it's smart regulation, not more regulation. And I know how challenged the whole sector is in terms of constant change in the regulation, how burdensome that is particularly in very large organizations, because you've got to change a lot of systems. So it's got to be, it's got to work. And to me, dovetails into the other stuff we're doing in terms of they are actually responsible for this stuff. And don't just go through a tick box exercise to comply. They're actually meaningfully engaged in the, in the whole area of clamping down on economic crime. Okay. And you mentioned the suspicious activity reports. Uh, your manifesto is particularly scathing of the effectiveness of suspicious activity reports, which companies must file when they suspect dodgy behaviour. Could you summarise how you'd like to see those reformed? What we want to see is a more intelligent system rather than, at the moment, it seems to be just disclosure in a court case. You, you can't see the wood for the trees because there's so many and uh, they don't tend to be categorised as well as they could. And so uh, it'd be very important that the people you represent to come and tell us how they want to see that reform. What we want to see is making sure that the most gratuitous cases, the ones that should be acted upon, are acted upon. And so we have a, a good system of prioritization in terms of that whole process, rather than simply throwing a loads of mud against the wall that nobody can quite see what's going on. Okay, so again, is that more of an exam question that you're posing to challenge yes. others to rethink how, how that could be made more effective? Very much so. Very much. And the government said that it wants to look at this area and say how we can improve it. There's lots of consensus that this area needs to be improved. It's making sure we look holistically at this. I suppose the thing we're trying to do with the manifesto is we haven't got all the detailed answers behind it because that's a huge body of work and that requires lots of consultation and input from lots of people. What we're trying to say is we don't want this to just be a halfway house. We want to go as far as we can in as many different areas we can to properly clamp down on the, on the opportunities that we currently allow in terms of the ability for organisations to shuffle money around. And that's what we're trying to do, to make it more comprehensive rather than a more sticking plaster approach. It wants to be an holistic approach, so we take into account all the different issues and all the different areas of improvement. That's not to say everything we put in that manifesto, we're going to get the economic crime bill, and we don't expect that at all. And, and that's why I probably highlighted a couple of areas that I think are most important. But I think it's important we, we tried to look at all the different areas and tried to do something that was very challenging of the government. Okay, and you mentioned at the outset that this is an area that the government has been seeking to look to for many years. And one of the reforms you suggest is a reform that has been suggested in various iterations a number of times, and that's reform of Companies House to gift it new powers to verify information, to ensure accuracy, challenge the data where red flags are raised and to remove corporate entities from the register when rules are broken. What makes you think that the government will listen to those reforms now, given that these changes have been proposed for years? I think we're probably more than anything else in the manifesto. We're pushing an open door with the government. This one It's already provided, I think, £64 million for Companies House to start on that process of reform. And then we can see in the government that it needs to, to have this simple things like ID checks and money laundering checks so that people have to prove their identity before they set up a company. So you can't hide behind some fictitious individual or indeed a useful idiot. 
to be able to pretend that this isn't actually a beneficial owner. So just some simple checks and balances like that, really. And the government's committed to do that, which is good. And so I think we've got much better chance of that happening. It's one of the loosest regimes in the world in terms of being able to establish a company. And I think as somebody who's been in business all my life, and I hate bureaucracy and don't want to make things too bureaucratic, but actually just showing you are who you say you are when you set up a company. You can't set up a company as Donald Duck or whatever as you can at the moment, which is pretty ludicrous. And that there are some money laundering checks on you is, I think, is quite a reasonable a set of steps which will aid transparency one of the key things with all this stuff and it's in our manifesto is transparency if you start to make things more transparent and available to the public and to the press and all kinds of other people then this stuff comes out and and then we have the opportunity when this stuff is drawn to attention of obviously eventually parliamentarians and law enforcement agencies then we can start to do something about this but without having to prove your real identity that's pretty difficult Mm-hmm. Uh, there are already complaints that the UK government's commitment to reforming Companies House could disproportionately hinder the already struggling small business population. What are your views on that and how do you think that the government should react to that? Uh, I think that's some nonsense, actually. So we propose a small levy to increase the cost to actually pay for this stuff. We don't expect the government to pay for it all. So it could, I think it costs about 12 quid to, to set up a company, a company's house. So making it 50 quid and that 38 quid going into funding, some checks and balances just to make sure you are who you say you are. It's not difficult to have to prove your identity. You can give a, a passport or a driving license when you set up a company. These aren't onerous things. So I'd be really disappointed if somebody who wanted to set up a company couldn't be bothered, was deterred by the fact they have to show their passport or driving license or something or a utility bill. It's not... That's much of a problem, I think, for most people who want to establish a company. You don't do it every day. You tend to do it once at the start when you start your company. So it's, it wouldn't delay matters beyond a few hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as you've said earlier in this conversation, parliamentarians can propose rules around corporate res- registrations all it pleases. But unless those rules are effectively policed, criminals will exploit them. And you've talked about the need for stronger enforcement to mitigate against that. How are you interacting with the FCA on your efforts here? And what have been their reaction to your manifesto? I haven't directly spoken to the FCA. Oh, the FCA haven't written to us to tell us what they think about the manifestos. I chair the All Party Group on Fair Business Banking. It's fair to say we've often been critical of the FCA's proactiveness or even reactiveness at times. And I know Nico Rati, the chief exec, is undergoing a period of transformation, hopefully, for the FCA to make it more proactive. And I wish him well with that. But it needs to be more proactive. And we need to see that regulator really stepping up to the plate when it's got the ability to do so. Part of what we want to do here is make it easier for regulators. That's the other point. At the moment, d- proving fraud in this country is notoriously difficult. So it's not just the FCA, of course. As you know, it, 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 like the NCA, National Crime Agency, and the Serious Fraud Office, we recommend some changes required that the SFO is very keen on, a failure to prevent offence, which does mean that given that criminal liability, either at corporate level or individual level. We want it to be individual level as well as corporate. But it makes it much easier for the law enforcement agencies to take a case forward and prosecute some of these cases. So we're trying to make that easier, not more difficult. That's part of this. So they welcome that, certainly. And I think generally, given the extent of economic crime, it is huge. We're not talking about petty crime here. The scale of it is huge. So that's a massive burning platform for change. So we've got to do things, things differently, and that's got to include 
making it slightly easier for our law enforcement agencies and our regulators, which is what we what we're trying to do. And obviously the scale of dirty money entering the UK is unknown, but experts estimate it is likely to be in excess of tens of billions of pounds annually. How has the situation got so out of control and is it too late to stem that flow of illicit money? No, it's never too late. It's got out of control because the UK is in a unique position, really. It has this consolidation, this huge critical mass of financial services organisations here and quite lax laws around formation of companies and property ownership, for example. And it also has lots of overseas territories that have different tax regimes. So if you do move money around, you can move it to areas with uh, low or zero tax. So they will operate on a similar common law basis. You can move money between those different areas pretty easily, which means the UK is in, in quite a unique place in terms of facilitating the moving of illicit money and the laundering of illicit money. So a really interesting podcast, which is done by Oliver Bullough, who wrote Moneyland and, and Butler to the World and other books as well. I think gone on BBC Sounds at the moment because How to Steal a Trillion, I think it's called. That really sets this out in clear detail, really worth a listen about why the UK is unique in terms of how it facilitates this stuff. But once we know how it, how it works and what we know what we've allowed to happen, then we can do something about it, which is what our manifesto is all about. What's been the reaction of UK lawmakers to your manifesto? The government's got the tricky job of looking at all this stuff and thinking, well, if we do that, if we turn that dial over here, we might move that needle over there. So they've got to tread it carefully. It's easy for us to be ambitious, but we won't get everything we want. But there's lots of sympathy for some of the things we do want. For example, I mentioned a couple of things now. Increasing resources to enforcement agencies, to me, that's a bit of a no-brainer. Over 40% now of all crime is economic crime, yet only 0.8% of our police force, for example, are focused on economic crime. There's this mismatch between the, the amount of crime and the amount of enforcement. So we want to increase enforcement. But also there's other measures that I think are really important, personal culpability. But the other key thing for me is whistleblowers. You know, almost every case I've dealt with over the last seven years has been brought to light because of a whistleblower. Yet, almost without exception, those whistleblowers have been not protected at all by the regulators or by the companies that they're blowing the whistle on or the law enforcement agencies, and nor have they been compensated. It's much more likely that a whistleblower within an organisation is going to identify wrongdoing than a regulator. So therefore, we've got to make sure the whistleblowers are properly protected and properly compensated or they just won't come forward. Mm-hmm. And that's the US model that they offer financial reward to whistleblowers to encourage them to come forward. Concerns previously raised around following something similar in the UK has been that it will encourage a lot of false whistleblowing activity if people are just trying to go after that money. And what would yes. you say to that? Yes, it's a very good point. And that's why we're not proposing the same as what's happening in the USA. So what they have is a rewards-based system, which can mean they get a percentage of the fines that are imposed on the wrongdoers. We're not proposing that at all. We're saying people should just be compensated. So if somebody's on £50,000 a year and they're, with, and they're without any remuneration for 10 years as a result of this, then they should get compensated accordingly. So they should be put back into the position they would have been. It's something as straightforward as that. It's compensation rather than reward. Where would that money come from if it's not coming from the fines? It could come from the fines, but it doesn't need to be a percentage of the fines in terms of if there's a 
billion dollar fine, you get 10% of it, which I think is more or less a US model. So you end up with $100 million, which is, I think, is not where we want to go. We just want to make sure people are properly protected and proper comp- properly compensated. So it's more a case of matching people's salaries as opposed to saying you could get X percent of a huge amount of money. Yeah, it is exactly that. It's just putting people back in the position they would have been had they not blown the whistle and people feeling that they would be protected and not disregarded and, and not treated with contempt, which too often happens. And I've seen that. I've seen some of our regulators treat whistleblowers with contempt, which is just unbelievable. But that's the case at the moment. So one of the other things we want to see to make sure people are properly protected is an office for the whistleblower. It is somewhere that uh, makes sure that our regulators and their organisations, be it a, a, a big bank or the NHS or whatever, doesn't just pay a lip service to how they respond to whistleblowing. They actually do what's right and those concerns are properly investigated. And if those concerns are proven to be the case and it's serious enough, those people will get properly compensated and and the companies themselves get sanctioned. To me, it doesn't need to be a large organisation. It sits above the regulators. So its work is to hold the regulators to account. So an organisation, for example, like the CMA, is a relatively small team, but it does make sure other regulators do the right thing in terms of where they look at competitive markets. This would look at making sure that whistleblowers are properly protected. So it would also set a code, of course, for regulators to follow, and it could hold regulators to account if they didn't do it properly. So the leader of the FCA could be criticised personally if if that organisation didn't look after whistleblowers properly, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we're speaking in the midst of a, a period of uncertainty over the PM's future, John Penrose, the government's anti-corruption minister, resigned in the midst of that. What impact do you think that that uncertainty will have on your efforts here? So, I mean, it's a good point. I very much hope the Prime Minister gets everything back on track. I think a period of instability around the leadership challenge right now would be deeply unhelpful for this agenda and for lots of others, to be fair. And leadership challenges take a lot of time and a lot, and lots of attention away from what we should be doing. So um, let's hope the Prime Minister gets things back on track and economic crime is one of the things that he's committed to bring forward this year. So let's assume the Prime Minister gets back on track. Let's assume the parliamentary calendar in in terms of the legislation is brought forward quickly and we get this economic crime bill marked two on the statute before the end of this parliamentary session, which is next May. So that's what we we hope will happen. And so you mentioned that the Prime Minister has shown his commitment to tackling economic crime, uh, but the government has also been accused of watering down efforts to combat economic crime after putting forward proposals that could produce transparency around company accounts. Does that concern you? You mean the changes in terms of directors taking responsibility for the financial statements, you think, yes. you mean? Okay, well, I had concerns about that, actually, because having been a director of company myself, for you to have to verify everything in, in a financial statement is correct... It's pretty tough because I was a chief exec of a regional large company. We, we employed 200 odd people and turned over tens of millions of pounds every year. And for me to know everything that was going on in that financial statement is pretty tough because you have a CFO and, and clearly that's, you've got to trust those people. So I think you've got to be careful before you put too much responsibility for a director to say everything at my account is, is quick clean. Otherwise, you'd end up just with a, a directors of companies being a professional cohort of people lawyers and accountants, which again is not what we want. We want an entrepreneurial society with individuals who know how to build businesses. So I have some sympathy with some of the changes there. And we don't expect everything we put in that manifesto to be adopted. 
we want a debate around those things, people to say, okay, you might think that, but have you thought about this? And I would welcome that kind of debate. And lots of people that are listening to this today will have some views that might not align with our views. So we want to hear, hear about that. And I think we've got to tread carefully whenever we legislate and make sure wherever we can that the legislation is fit for purpose, but uh, try to propose what we think are sensible measures, but we're willing to be challenged on it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess the question speaks more to the fact that the government is saying on one side, yes, we want to tackle economic crime. Yes, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really focused our attentions there. And then the other side passing rules that could be seen to undermine those efforts. I don't really see that. I think it's toughening the regime up, but it probably won't toughen things up as much as people want all the time because it has to think about the other side of the equation, the unintended consequences, the increased bureaucracy, the implications of too burdensome a regulation on business itself or the individuals within it. I think it's reasonable to to expect the government would look at those things and take those things into account. The financial services sector has a huge amount of influence on the Treasury and quite rightly because they're a very hugely successful sector that uh, pays an awful lot of tax in this country. So we should welcome that, of course, have success and be proud of it. But we've got to listen to those people at the sharp end have make some valid points otherwise you would just regulate the heck out of them and you regulate them out of existence and they disappear abroad so we just got to tread carefully otherwise we won't have a financial services sector as large as we have today okay and the manifesto does say that dirty money is a national security threat according to the international and security committee russia report which was released in july 2020 there is substantial evidence that Russian interference in the British economy and, and politics is commonplace. How can you get rid of Russian influence in British politics? Well, some of the measures we've talked about in the manifesto, to be honest, around making sure there's more transparency about organisations and ownership of property, wherever possible. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, as we always keep saying. So that's the starting point. So one of the things we wanted to try and explore is at the moment, our sanctions are fairly good at freezing money, but not very good at actually seizing assets and redistributing them to repair damage that's done. And if we could improve our ability to do that, I think it will deter a lot of people from putting money here that's illicit. Now, that's pretty tough. We believe in property rights in the UK. We believe that people's ownership of stuff is pretty sacrosanct. But nevertheless, we've got to all have an interest in making sure that the money that's washing around the UK is not illicit. So there's many things in the manifesto I think will, will help to clamp down on that, and not least on the issues I discussed earlier about culpability and whistleblowing. What would you like those tasked with ensuring financial services firms do what they can to clamp down on money laundering to take away from your efforts to clean up UK markets? Well, I'd very much welcome any organisation or any person writing to us and saying, OK, we're interested in this, but have you thought about X, Y and Z? So we want engagement, we want a debate. This stuff at some point will get debated on the floor of the House. Prior to that, we'd like people's views on what we're proposing and whether we should go further or whether some of the things we're proposing will have adverse consequences. So we'd really like like to engage. So please let us know what you think. Okay. And so what are the next steps with regards to the manifesto? Well, I say that engagement, we welcome people's views on our manifesto and making sure we're ticking the right boxes and we're not ticking the wrong boxes. And then we're, we're engaging now with ministers. It's a genuine cross-party effort. We've got people right across the political spectrum supporting the measures we want to put in place. So we'd like to see as much of that as possible in the economic crime bill when it comes forward. No doubt there'll be some things in there that we don't like. 
also some things that are not in there that we do like. So that's where we go the, through the process of amendments and try and persuade the government to put some things in and take some things out. I, I just like to see the financial services sector be more accountable. That's the number one thing. And I imagine loads of people listening to this podcast, the compliance officers and the like, are throwing their hands up in horror. I think, my God, you're going to make it like, even more difficult for us. I, I really don't want to. I, I want to make it a smarter regulation that, but really when things go wrong, that the regulator is willing and able to act much more swiftly. I personally think we've got a pretty heavily regulated sector. I just don't think the regulators and the law enforcement agencies have the tools at their disposal to regulate it properly. And I think once you are seen to be proactive in terms of how you regulate, the stuff stops happening in the first place. Once you say to people, you can go to jail for this stuff, then the bosses clamp down on it and stop it happening in the first place so that it makes it much easier for people on the listen to this podcast to do their jobs because people take it seriously. So I'm not after lots and lots more regulation. I'm just after more accountability. Okay, well, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavours. It's clearly a very necessary series of reforms that you are proposing. So thank you very much for your time today, Kevin. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.